Hola, amigos, and welcome to another episode of Cinema Snorkel. <laughs> that was my best Puss in Boots impression. Yes, bienvenidos to all our listeners. And that's all the Spanish I know. So, Carlin, what are we talking about today? Tell me. We're talking about Shrek 18, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. <laughs> <laughs> I am known by many names. Tabby Tabby, El Macho Gato, The Little Whisperer. I am Puss in Boots. So what is that, like uh, a four? That makes eight, Puss. What do you wish to do with your last life? When you only have one life, that's what makes it special. Drive, perro! We're in the era of side character spinoff series where side characters, whether they be minions or penguins or Puss in Boots, they get whole trilogies of movies. <laughs> and sometimes, Absolutely. sometimes the spinoffs are better than the original movies. What do you think about that? Carlin, did you know that this movie is a sequel to a 2011 Puss in Boots movie? <laughs> I did. I, I didn't know that, that until <laughs> very recently. <laughs> I forgot about that until I saw Miss Kitty or whatever her name is. Kitty Soft Paws. Kitty Soft Paws. And then I realized there's a whole plot behind that about her. But luckily it just doesn't matter. So you don't have to yeah. go watch the 2011 movie. Ignore it. No. You know, no, but you really they do have to. a history. Mm. Have you seen that movie recently? Do you know what it's about? It came out 12 years ago. I didn't even remember that it existed. <laughs> <laughs> kind of hinted at the fact that there's going to be another Shrek after this. I mean, I'm kindling a little bit of faith in sequels and in DreamWorks sequels. It feels like a risk, but you know, the bar's so low right now that anything that's as good as Puss in Boots, I think will be a good sequel. You know, a lot of people were very pleasantly surprised by this film. That yeah. It got rave reviews. And you know what? Yeah. I appreciated so much of it. But another part of me, Carlin, did wonder... Maybe we just think this is the bomb because the bar is very low right now for animated <laughs> <laughs> films. Uh, is that my imagination or is the bar like super low? Like, oops, I tripped over it kind of I, low. It's both. But I do think this movie was very cute. Yes, um, it was. How deep was it? I don't know. But but I think it was fun. It was so chaotic. And yet it worked. Like, I felt like I was tracking with everything going on. I was invested in all the characters. Like for a movie as frenetic as this one was, I felt like it did a good job. So Carl, give us a summary. You know, what happens in Puss in Boots, The Wishing Star? You don't want to try? You don't want to try the summary? Yeah, I'll give it a shot. Here we go. Buckle up, everyone. We're going to be here for a while. Uh, and I got, you know, given that I got the title wrong just now, it's Puss in Boots, The Last <laughs> Wish. All right, here's here's what happens. We open on Puss in Boots. He is a fantastic, who is your favorite fearless hero? It's Puss in Boots. He's singing raucous ballads in the governor's mansion. He's swinging from chandeliers. He's drinking the leche. And everyone loves him. All of a sudden, the ruckus from their celebration triggers a giant emerging from beneath the city. But Puss in Boots manages to vanquish the giant using his signature, like, fearless moves. But then... Can I give the he... summary? <laughs> Otherwise, we're going to get a shot by shot of this entire movie. <laughs> Fine. You do it. All right. All right. And I bet boots, it'll be more boring. Go. Puss in, Puss in Boots realizes he's on his last life of nine. 
And all of a sudden, for the first time in his life, he's experiencing fear and true panic. And a very scary wolf is coming to get him. And he realizes if he dies this time, he's really going to die. Cut scene to Goldilocks and the three bears. They're coming to find him in his early retirement and recruit him to go find the last wish. They have a reason for getting the last wish. Can I do this summary? Okay, take it. <laughs> Goldilocks and the Three Bears and Katie Softpaws, uh, an antagonist slash protagonist slash love interest from Puss's past. Everyone's going for the wishing star. So together they go on a journey to find the wishing star. Nice. That was concise. <laughs> it's pursued by the villain, little Jack Horner. Totally creepy dude. His arms are way too long for himself and his cheeks are way too fat for his face. I had a question. Is his name little Jack Horner or little Jack Hoarder because he hoards all of the magical artifacts? I believe it's little Jack Horner. Don't know why. In the original nursery rhyme, it actually is little Jack Horner who sat in a corner. Well, shall we just read his backstory lore? <laughs> you pull up the lore. Little Jack Horner sat in a corner eating his Christmas pie. He put in his thumb and pulled out a plum and said, what a good boy am I? Is that the whole of it? That's the whole of it. Now, Carlin, let me just ask you right off the bat, because I was thinking about this. Is that significant to the character of Jack Horner? Like, well, first of all, what does that nursery rhyme mean? I've never known. Honestly, there probably is some twisted and gruesome um, interpretation of it that has to do with like plague or death or disease or something. Um, but I think how they use it in the movie is that all the other fairy tale characters have something magical, whimsical about them. And little good boy Jack Horner's got none of that. And so he's just purely selfish. Like, he just wants to have all the magic and not share it with anyone. Yeah, and if I were going to shoot from the hip on that nursery rhyme, I'd say it's a lesson against greed because he ruins the dang pie by sticking his thumb in it, but he pulls it out and he says, no, I'm actually pretty good. What a good boy am I? Like, I've done I've done right. I've done all right for myself, Jack, you know, old boy. <laughs> that's, that's me overanalyzing the nursery rhyme. But anyway, And all the other continue. people are like, who stuck their thumb in this pie? Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a tool move. It's not a great thing to do. So so, you know, he's not a great boy, as we find out in this movie. He's, not, he's a great big boy, but he isn't. He's uh, not so great. Carl, what did you like about Puss in Boots, The Last Wish? Um, well, everyone loves this new kind of animation style. That's super fun. Um, the super stylized fight sequences. OK, I'll say my favorite thing was that the wolf, who I won't spoil. Yeah, heck, I will. He, he turns do. out to be death. He's like the Grim Reaper. <gasps> that was the coolest character. Um, he was just downright scary. Like, oh, for a cartoon, they really got me. Totally. totally. Um, the way they portrayed Puss's actual fear of death, I thought they, they brought a lot of um, realistic tension to that. Like, he kind of has a panic attack for a second, and he's like, his heart's pounding out of his ears. And then um, little pet, uh, what's his name? The dog. Perito. Comes and just is bees a therapy dog to him. I thought that was a great moment. Which was that... Which was his dream all along. Perito wanted to be and a therapy he got dog. to do his dream. What was your favorite thing, Case? What'd you like? Yeah, I like I like what you said about the animation style. It's different than, you know, the Shrek formula was, uh, this was like in the early days of animation. And when I first saw Shrek, I thought, oh my gosh, this is real people. How is this not real people? Where is Shrek? Like, Where is he? I need to see him. <laughs> this, this is real life. They film this with cameras. It looks that good. <laughs> 
But they were going for that hyper-realism kind of style with kind of a gritty 2000s hard-edge twist. You know what yeah. I mean? So uh-huh. Shrek reads that opening fairy tale, and then he rips a page out of it to use as toilet paper. <laughs> Iconic. So, like, that's the kind of Shrek formula is, like... Yeah, if you ever met the fairy tales, this is what they're like in the real world, you know, in yeah, Los right. Angeles or whatever. Um, and this, we're so far away from that now. We're like 20 years past that, that they changed the animation style and I think moved away from that formula a little bit. And that's fine. It, you know, it's a standalone thing. I don't know why that's significant other than I like how, that animation style too. How would you describe it compared to the original Shrek style? The original Shrek was aimed, I think, at a target audience of like 18 to 19 to 20 year olds mm-hmm. who were in 18, 19 and 20 in 2002 or whenever it came out. This one's aimed at children for sure. So that, that would be the main difference, I would and say. And yet it's done, I think, it's not thrown away. Like, I think sometimes kids' shows are thrown away. This is made with excellence, technical excellence and artistic excellence. Totally. Like, it's just a beautiful movie, shot for shot. Right. And we say it on this show all the time, but kids' movies are uh, packed to the brim with subliminal messaging. Yep. They are designed, by simplifying it, we actually tip our hands big time about what our worldview actually is. And so some of my favorite conversations we've had, Carlin... We're about uh, kids' animated movies. I'm thinking about The Bad Guys, which no one ever saw. Uh, we, you and I were the only ones, <laughs> except for a bunch of 10-year-olds, who ever saw that movie <laughs> and their yeah. parents. But yeah. it, remember that conversation? It was chock full of themes that you and I didn't think we were going to discover. Mm-hmm. But it's because, yeah, it's like nutrient-dense, usually. Even when it's not, it is. It's almost unintentionally so. It's like just the the inherent worldview seeps out a little clearer when it's not meant to be a thinking piece, you know? Totally. Totally. They can't help it. It has to. To tell a story, they do have to tip their hand about, like, who are bad guys, for example? When a little kid, because yeah. kids have to think about it in binary like that. Who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? What makes the good guys good? What makes the bad guys bad? Yeah, but then all the reasons and support for that are the subtleties that seep in kind of like sublingually. <laughs> like you don't even put it into words. You just receive the message straight to your noggin. Absolutely. I thought we could go through and talk about each character, their motivations, and... Um, and all of that, but I wonder if you would just take a stab at what do you think this movie's trying to say? Like your first impression. I feel like the movie is about dealing with fear and also about dealing with selfishness. Mm, right. You? Yeah, because Jack is clearly the embodiment of selfishness. But then oh. we what? And the wolf is the embodiment of fear. Never never thought about that. Those are the two antagonists. Well, Fear and death. I mean, fear comes with death. So there's fear of death, and then there's fear of commitment, I think, or fear of vulnerability. Right. And what I was going to say was that Jack is selfish, but what we are kind of unexpectedly find out is that Puss has been selfish this whole time, and he hasn't been thinking about other people, really. He's been kind of wrapped up in himself like um kitty says to him at the end maybe puss says to kitty the the legend was so large that there wasn't room for anything else and then katie has this line where she says i can't compete with your favorite person yourself 
Yeah. Ooh. Oh, nice, nice Drop burn, the Kitty. Mic. But then Kitty herself is dealing with a whole slew of rejection issues, and then you've got Goldilocks also dealing with stuff. Anyways, let's go through. Let's go through character totally. by character. So let's start with Carlin, Goldilocks, and the Bears as side yeah. characters. What's For their sure. deal? Yeah, well, it seems like Goldilocks, um, she's kind of got a, a sub game. She's playing against them a little bit, and you start to realize that. And then at the end, she's going to use her wish to replace them for a real family, which is this huge burn because this whole time they've been functioning as this tight foursome where they're, you know, they're like rolling over each other and spring launching each other and attacking yeah. to get like they, they move in total synchronization with their Cockney English accents. Yeah, they're like a crime syndicate. I mean, a crime family. <laughs> Ain't it right, Mama Bear? What, what do you make of Goldilocks? What do you think? that's about yeah i think she goes on that whole journey too where she starts off being selfish wanting the wish so she could wish wish for a real family but then she discovers the real wish is the family she's had all along yeah and at the end realizes she doesn't need magic to change what she's got she just needed to open her eyes yeah and appreciate that the bears are her family. What Interesting. Keep, what keeps her from recognizing them that? So this is where I feel like these characters are two-dimensional in some ways. What did the bears ever do to be mean to Goldilocks? Like, there's a little <laughs> tension between Baby Bear and Goldilocks because it's like, what, we got to share the same bed? Like, my bed was just right, you know? And so Goldilocks <laughs> is kind of like the replacement child. That motivation makes sense to me. But they never do anything to her that's remotely bad in fact the mama bear's like if it would make you happy the will help you find the wish you know you're like well that is just sticky sweet <laughs> it's why? too sweet it's too goldilocks sweet. why are you such a cad this is honestly terrible it's a terrible <laughs> dynamic so yeah she's a terrible person i wrestle with that like did they give goldilocks like an un i know her under her motivation is somewhat understandable but i don't you know they're side characters and again in a kid's movie you got to tell the story fast. Yeah. And I, I just wonder, like, for a kid watching this, would they empathize with Goldilocks or would they just think, wow, she's just bad and mean? I want to slow down and and read what the things on her map, because I feel like the map is a not very subtle window into each character's, like, pathology. It's probably buried deep in someone's YouTube video someone's gotta have this. someone's gotta have pulled this out i'm sure someone on youtube is like here's all the easter eggs you missed in puss in boots the last wish the only one that i remember for sure is that it's something about nostalgia and that's why they end up at their bears like childhood home but i'm not sure how that's supposed to slow her down but it does give her some care some time for character like backstory and some growth yeah. and development but anyways i think you're right i think there might not be too much more to her at the very end with Goldilocks, she decides to save Baby Bear at the cost of her wish. And I think, if I if my memory serves me right, she says something kind of glib, like, well, <laughs> I don't know, like, you guys are, my, I guess you're my family all along. Elbow nudge, you know, like, I was never really going to do the wish, like, that kind of a line. Yeah. Is that what, am I remembering that correctly? No, I think she's, she is glib, like, she can't just be genuine, but she does sacrifice her wish. She realizes that she's had a lovely family, and she... And maybe if you're like a seven-year-old and you're angry because you had to go to bed early or you, your mom made you eat broccoli and you're angry at her, that's maybe the message you need to hear, you know? Like, your family is a wonderful family, even if um, sometimes you're discontent 
with how things are. If we wanted to push the movie too hard, see, and I don't, I think I it's, that. I think it's fair for us to do that because the best kids movies, I mean, Finding Nemo for crying out loud, yeah. you know, they're dealing with these themes and they're not shying back inside out. Oh my gosh. You know, they're yep. not shying away from the real pain because kids are just little people and the things they're dealing with are smaller in scale, but they're not qualitatively different than the things that any of us are dealing with. Mm-hmm. So if I was going to push the movie too hard, I would say that Goldilocks and her struggle represents something that maybe a lot of kids do feel where they actually, maybe they are like, there's a lot of adopted kids who go on that same journey. Mm-hmm. Who's my real family? Right. She's and not I, a bear. And that's very clear to her. And there's a sense of that struggle that's, that w- I think would actually be very fair for them to portray. I'm not a bear. Where do I fit? And maybe even mm-hmm. hit the same moment of catharsis. Where I felt like this uh, missed a mark a little bit, what I think they ended up doing is they made, I mean, and these are like side characters in a sequel of a movie about side characters. <laughs> so, you know, maybe, maybe it's not fair for me to levy this, but it's like they had to, ma- I think they just start portraying her as a cartoonish villain, like mm-hmm. Goldilocks and the bears, they're a crime syndicate. Then the bears are like sticky sweet towards each other. And you're like, this doesn't really match up. They're like basically good. So are they bad or are they good? <laughs> right. And then at the end, Goldilocks goes from being just like heinous, like willing to betray these kind, sweethearted bears. All they want is the wish, you know? Right. And then she on kind of a, on a dime says, Okay, I, I guess I guess you really are my family, and we're not really told why. And her struggle, to be honest, doesn't feel super validated to me that whole time. Mm, her struggle of belonging in a family of bears. Yeah, yeah, I mean that's that's a punch they could have landed probably easily with a line here or a tweak here. I I just need to I put my cards on the table. I liked this movie. I think it wasn't bad. I understand it's for kids. But what we do on this podcast is microanalyze things because, like we've just been saying, the best movies for kids take this seriously. I think this movie missed some of the emotional punches Mm. that they were going for. Mm. And it's not just with Goldilocks. So here's something I noticed. Yeah. Puss in Boots is dealing with commitment issues. Yeah. And he needs to learn how to... uh, like show up at the wedding chapel, for example, and commit to life with Katie Softpaws. Yes. Kitty Softpaws. Now, how does he arrive at that final stage where he's willing to do that? Walk me me through his plot. All right. So there's a a moment where they get separated and he has the map on the inside of the reflection mirror place. And they're like, they've been working in sync. They've been having a good time. They're starting to feel the feelings and like revive the spark. She's like, okay, you go take the map, blah, blah, blah. And I'll go this way. And then he has a moment alone where his reflections come to him and say, you have the map. You could just go to the star right now. And he kind of does. He gets right down to the star and he, you can see the look in his eyes. He feels conflicted, uh, but he's, he's thinking about making that wish. And you're like, will he, won't he? And then everyone shows up. They fight for a little bit. Kitty feels betrayed because puss has come down to the star without her and then death shows up and this is his real nemesis and he draws the cat eyes shaped circle around him and then puss is like am i gonna run away again or am i gonna stand and fight and then yay he decides to stand and fight and he says this one life i'm gonna fight for it and then he fights death and then by by the time they get done with that fight death turns to him and goes you i came here to take 
this arrogant, self-obsessed, fearful, running away person, but you're not him anymore. So I'll see you later. Um, And so, okay. So he kind of wins that battle and he's come to a new level of understanding. And then Kitty is like, you can still have the wish. And then, or he says, Kitty, you can have your wish. And she goes, oh, I don't need it anymore. And then she doesn't want it anymore because he's become the kitty that she fell in love with, which I guess is someone who doesn't run away, but someone who faces down his fear. So where's the reckoning with his own selfishness and fear of commitment and all that? I see him conquering death in a Puss in Boots way where he says, I'm not afraid to die. I'm willing to now fight death instead of running away. Okay, nice. So as far as the fear of death is concerned, he realizes he shouldn't be cavalier with his lives, but Mm -hmm. he's going to have to spend them at some point. And so Mm. then he tackles death. That plot makes sense to me. Where's Mm -hmm. the reckoning with his own selfishness and apology to Kitty? Now, you've seen this movie more recently. Mm. I saw it a couple weeks ago. True. Help me. Does that happen? That's a really good question. I mean, I think it's not very clear or distinct from his other journey. I guess they're kind of relying on the fact that he sees his life flash before his eyes and it's full of tender moments and not his lives. They clarify. He's not seeing all nine of his lives. He's just seeing the most recent life. And it's full of all these tender moments with Perito and Kitty Softpaws and like little moments that he's had basically since the last time he died. And I think they're relying on that to be like, this life, even though it's not as grand and exciting, is sweet and meaningful. And so he doesn't need to be afraid of commitment. He doesn't need to be the greatest hero who ever lived. But then I feel like what they did was they they yanked the rug out from under them when Kitty says, oh, I wasn't at the chapel either. What did you make (laughs) of that little moment where you picture her standing? I mean, I was waiting to see her in like a Kitty wedding dress in the chapel. Was that just like a little feminist, like she doesn't need a man, so she disappeared as well? Or was there something else to that? Silly, set dressing, or significant, I think is the question. And to me, that registers... Registers right on the silly scale because it doesn't, uh, it it might be somewhat in line with the character, but it doesn't really advance the plot. It's just there to like say something outside. It's a director going, yeah, well, she wasn't at the chapel either, you know? So I do, I think it does cheapen it. Right. It just gives her a little, a little dig. Does, does Kitty Softpaws want commitment? Clearly. Um, but she's, I guess in that sense, pretending like she didn't because she didn't show up at the, rock up at the chapel either. So, well, so where's the moral catharsis? That's what I'm looking for, Carl. Yeah, no, you're right. But she's got her own commitment issues that she keeps saying things to Perito, where she's like, "What? What's? What is this guy insane? Like, life's not, um, life's not a basket full of posies. Like, you're gonna be betrayed. Take it from me, kid." And then she still has a sock. You know, like she's got her own hardness, and they're pretty blatant with it. Like, they're not, they're not being really yes. that clever. Like, it's very on the nose. Okay, she's been betrayed, and now she doesn't trust anyone or anything. Yeah. So, what's the tipping point where she then decides to stick with Puss? Uh, I don't think there is one. She's kind of, she's just waiting around for him to grow up, but she has her own growing to do. But then they don't follow through on that, so they're like. They don't give you the meaningful resolution with either character. Here's the point that kind of broke the movie open for me a little bit. Hmm. Puss, his whole character arc is needing to deal with fear. He has been so cavalier about it, he just doesn't care. Then all of a sudden he cares. How does he get over that? Well, it's by looking fear in the face and dealing with his problems. I think that's where the movie is like Mm. yearning to land. Mm -hmm. They truly want to land there. 
They want to tell us a story about Puss in Boots dealing with his fear of both commitment and death and committing to life. Okay. Yeah. I, I think that's a great place to want to land. But like we've said, he doesn't quite get there. But how does he conquer the fear part? Well, he has that kind of panic attack moment. Yes. And what happens is Perito comes up and just comforts him, which is so sweet. I really love that. I think it's a humanizing moment. But is it a good enough answer to fear to just have some external force calm you down first? You know. Yeah. Now, listen, I, I don't want to get into real life because I do think there is a, a serious, there's room for that. We're vulnerable. We're, we are dependent beings. We need other people. But here's where it got me. Where, what is Perito's journey? Oh, yeah, here, I was going to ask you about that. Here's a dog who uh, literally is just treated so terribly. They play it for laughs like, oh, and then they threw me in the river with a sock and a rock. And you're like, oh, but he's like, but it was OK. I popped to the surface like a rubber duck. Like, I'm happy go lucky. And that's his character. And that's yeah. his whole character arc. Yeah. Nothing changes. And what ends up happening is he's just there for puss to make it all better for puss in boots, the yeah. the protagonist. But they're contradicting themselves because Perito never looks in the face of his own trauma and Ooh. has a moment of dealing with his own stuff. He just is like magically invincible to the way of trauma yeah. by being pure happy all the time. Which that's not true. That's not how the world is. And that actually could be a dangerous message if they're going to stick to their guns on it and say the Pareto way is the best way, which is just be like unfazably optimistic. Right. And the problem is that while Puss in Boots ultimately deals with his fear of death, there's never a point where he internalizes his own selfishness and his need to take responsibility. So what happens is a therapy dog comes, calms him down, and he looks, you know, in another scene around the cave at his former selves and realizes he's having a better time now with Kitty and Perito. But what doesn't happen is that Puss himself realizes he's been selfish, sees the way it hurts others, apologizes for doing that, and then changes his heart. Yeah. So if this is a kid's story about other people being really kind to Puss in Boots, I mean, that's great. But I guess what I'm feeling overall with the story is that without that moment of taking personal responsibility, it so easily becomes a story of other people just enabling Puss to keep going in his selfishness. It's the people around Puss, not Puss in Boots himself, who end up doing the heavy lifting. And to be honest, the same thing happens with Goldilocks's family, right? These bears are like really absurdly nice to Goldilocks. And then at the end, she's kind of like, eh, okay, fine, whatever, you could be my family. It just feels so lackluster. There's never that reckoning with responsibility. Like, for example, the bears are never upset that literally she was almost about to betray them f so she could get the wish. Yeah. They just sort of take her back immediately. It all happens so fast. And I think why that is is because we have a model today of fixing our problems that doesn't take individual responsibility seriously. So, Carlin, I think this might get into some of our Christian worldviews analysis of what's going on. I have a theory and I want to put it yeah. to you. Casey, tell me your theory. I think our world is struggling to make sense of character arcs and catharsis without using moral terms. We're a society that hmm. doesn't deal with morality on its face. 
like what? What are some terms you're thinking of? Well, we want to reconcile our fear of death and our selfishness. Um, but what we don't want to do is directly say, yeah, it's wrong to be selfish. And what you need to do if you've been selfish is say, I'm sorry, I was so selfish. There's no mm. real excuse for it. I chose to protect myself and it's understandable, but I chose to be selfish and I hurt people along the way. I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? And then how it's supposed to go is the other person says, you know what? I do forgive you. You, what you did hurt me, but I love you enough to forgive you. And, and so I mm-hmm. forgive you. That's the moral catharsis of selfishness that we hmm. are instinctively longing for. But our culture hmm. lacks the tools to do that because we've effectively erased morality as a category of storytelling. We don't understand it. Hmm. It's foreign to us. Instead, we live in an age where morality is medicalized. Hmm. What do you mean by that? Well, we have only one category for dealing with things, and it's a function of our materialist, functionally materialist worldview. We don't believe there's a source of ultimate morality. We tend to believe that morality is culturally constructed as a way of survival. Uh Okay, so think about that right there. If your culture designs systems of morality to help you survive, what's the end goal of morality? It's not right and wrong for their own sake. It's survival. Morality is a means to an ends. And so how that plays out now is that we are good at diagnosing things. We're better than we used to be, and that's a good thing. Medicine has come Uh a long way. But what we rely on medicine to do now is to diagnose moral problems that demand moral catharsis, but we're unwilling to go there. Mm. So instead of dealing with terms like right or wrong, we'll say things like healthy or unhealthy. Yeah, or fear. Or unbalanced. Right, right. Like you, you're overemphasizing self-care rather than um, taking care of people around you, as opposed to saying you're being selfish and what's right is for you to make a sacrifice for someone that you love. Yes. And what makes a hero a hero in our world um, and what makes a villain a villain? Uh, for example, the best villains have deeply understandable motives, but they're villains because mm-hmm. they choose to do evil despite the hand's that they've been dealt. So like Oliver Twist is a hero because he chooses to be courageous and noble despite being an orphan. So he's been dealt a bad hand, but what he chooses to do with it makes him the hero. Um, But take morality out of that equation. And we are in a confused jumble about how to do heroes and villains well. So Jack Horner to me feels like a completely one dimensional bad guy, which they have some laughs at, which were genuinely funny. Like Jiminy Cricket's on his shoulder, like you're you're a monster. There's nothing redeemable (laughs) about you. And he like flicks him off. And I could only hear your Jiminy Cricket voice in my head, by the way, (laughs) during that whole character. I was just thinking about like, this could be Casey. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Jiminy Cricket. Yeah. But Jiminy Cricket, and we laugh at it, and it's like meta. It's like self-aware that Jiminy Cricket has no impact on Jack Horner because Jack Horner is not a moral being. He's completely amoral. He's just selfish. What do you mean amoral? Do you mean immoral or do you mean amoral? Amoral. He's operating outside the bounds of morality. Like in his own mind, he doesn't, he's not holding himself to any sort of standard. Yeah. They never really show him dealing with, uh, uh, any moral question. I mean, yeah, he just, he just operates as though he's outside of the the question. I'm like, of course I'd be selfish. What are you stupid? And we all as an audience are meant to disapprove of that. Obviously, like, don't be like Jack. Nobody, nobody likes him, but there's also no, um, consequences. Would you say, would you say there's no consequences for his evil? It, 
it feels like there are no consequences. Yeah, he does all these heinous things and they're for laughs. And like he sacrifices all of his men and yeah. as part of the Shrek uh, like vibe. But yeah, it, it feels pretty cheap in the long run because, and this is just my theory, our listeners are free to disagree. It feels like the good guys aren't taking morality that seriously either. Ooh. Just to justify that. What do you, yeah, what do you, why do you say that? Uh, it's just more implicit than it is like explicit. Of course, the movie wants us to say, like, yeah, no, the heroes do the right thing, but, but like the, the, the feeling of the film implicitly is more about healing from past trauma than it is about doing mm. the right thing. And so the moral calculus feels a little askew, which is why Goldilocks just deciding to be family with the bears and, Kitty Softpaw is just deciding to take Puss back and Puss conquering his fear of death makes sense because that's about healing from past trauma. But Puss apologizing deeply for his selfishness, they they almost get there, but I feel like they yeah. pull their punch at the last minute. Interesting. And and kind of where everybody settles is we don't need magic. We just needed to be exactly what, how we are before. No apologies, no repentance, no change, really. Just be a little kinder. I wonder if that snuck in into the worldview. I don't think they'd explicitly say that. Well, because they want to show change. They're, they're desperately yeah. trying to show change. I just think they're missing the biggest tool in their arsenal, which is a reality that people are moral beings first and yeah. foremost. And we're responsible for what we do. And that's, that's what heroes and that's what makes a hero. And that's what makes a villain. And that's where real character transformation comes. Not just circumstances reshuffling themselves, not just a therapy dog being nice to you. See, cause that's mm -hmm. important. It's important that people love you unconditionally, but what prompts yeah. real heart change is acceptance of responsibility for the things that you've done to contribute. It's not all your fault, but for the things that are your fault, the right thing to do is mm -hmm. to take responsibility and to choose to change mm. based on that. And even to accept the consequences that come with it. Is there an example that you can think of of a, of a character that does that? Because popping into my mind, and I'm not sure if this is a good comparison yet. I need to remember. But in, I was thinking in Frozen 2, Anna has this really dark moment where she thinks that Elsa is dead and abandoned her. And she realizes that their kingdom has um, hurt the kingdom of the forest people, whatever they're called. And amends need to be made. Like reparation needs to happen between these two kingdoms, even though it wasn't their fault. It was their ancestors or whatever, but she gets to this really low moment where she just wants to give up. And instead she sings the song about do the next right thing. Do you remember this moment? Totally. That's not really, uh, Anna taking responsibility for her own moral failure, but it is relevant. I, I see where you're going with that. <laughs> Our culture is weirdly comfortable with corporate responsibility way more yeah. than we are with individual responsibility. Interesting. And so, boy, I think that scene in that movie, I was really appreciative of that. That prompts a really good question, which is what do nations owe other nations for the sins of our forefathers? Yeah. There's nothing more relevant than that right now. And I, I actually, I know a lot of people were like, that's woke. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was like, well, it's a valid question. Like it, it needs to be something we ask. But what yeah. I would say is maybe even, I mean, this isn't about frozen, but to the, to your point about Anna, we, we can't hope to understand corporate responsibility. If we have no conception of individual responsibility, 
if mm. all our movies show villains as either unredeemable monsters or this is and this is way more tropey, just misunderstood, hurt victims who once they're understood mm-hmm. suddenly do the right thing. And if all our yeah. heroes the Joker, yeah, Jokers of the world. The Jokers of the world. And if none of our heroes really deal in the realm of morality, but only deal in the realm of trying to get over past trauma, we're showing a very lopsided moral calculus. We have no hope of addressing corporate individual corporate responsibility right but it's more comfy for us because taking responsibility for a nation doesn't require personal transformation on my part Hmm. and and again here i'm not trying to land on one side or the other of the like how do nations and corporate entities take responsibility i think they i think there's a, a very legitimate case to be made that they should but but yeah i just as a wider cultural trend we don't we don't know how to deal with morality so so one example i was thinking of was Eustace Clarence Scrub from The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. A true hero. C.S. Lewis opens the book by saying, there once was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. (laughs) What a line. (laughs) Because Eustace really is a rotter. He just is like uptight and arrogant, and he's all about facts, and he's not about uh, humanity, like showing genuine humanity to other people. But he gets pulled into this Narnian journey, this voyage with Prince Caspian, where he functions as sort of a thorn in everybody's side until one time he finds a dragon lair and sleeps on the dragon horde, which is full of gold. And he goes, C.S. Lewis says, he falls asleep thinking greedy dragonish thoughts. And he wakes Hmm. up a dragon and it prompts this existential crisis for Eustace Clarence Scrub where he goes, man, I really have been rotten. I kind of did deserve to turn into a dragon. It's like, woe is me a little bit, but also like, dang, like I, uh, you know, my main thought here was to how to score all this gold. I had no thought for my companions. And his insides get manifested to his outsides. And what happens? He has to, and this is where C.S. Lewis, I mean, he's one of the, he's one of the greats. Eustace Clarence Scrub has to reconcile. He, he has to do a clean apology to his friends, but first he has to go to the source of healing and renewal, which is Aslan, the creator. So Aslan, the lion who breathed everything into existence, has to rip Eustace's dragon skin off him because he has no hope of transformation by his by himself. So he needs unconditional Mm. love, but then he also needs Mm -hmm. to take personal responsibility. And what he does is he lets Aslan come and rip this dragon skin off of him and it hurts like crazy. But then he gets into the the uh, cleansing pool and, and it. Uh, Lewis's writing on this is so descriptive. It's so good because you can just feel like, oh, it's like cold and unpleasant. But when he gets out of the pool, it's like refreshing and he's a human being uh, once more. Yeah, He's been forgiven. Yeah. And so then he goes and asks for forgiveness. And Lewis is so, this is why he's the goat. He's just like, um, Eustace did not transform overnight. There were still moments where the dragonish side of him came out. Well, he literally did transform overnight, but his <laughs> character, his inner character did his not character, transform overnight. Right. He, he still had moments <laughs> where he relapses but there's like a moment of taking responsibility asking for forgiveness being forgiven and then asking Mm -hmm. and then and then progressing moral moral progress can happen in that world yeah he says uh it wouldn't be accurate to say that from that day forward eustace was a better boy but from that day forward he began to be a better boy amazing so good so and there are a lot of other moments you know even in when we're dealing with fear for example like marlin in finding nemo yeah has 
a moment where he realizes his very legitimate fear of everything bad that can happen has led him to be a bad father to his son. Yeah. And over his journey, he has a moment where he realizes I've been holding Nemo back in my fear for his safety. I haven't actually loved the son I have in front of me. And he has moral catharsis along with healing from trauma. So we need them both. But a movie like this one tips its hand, in my opinion, Carlin, that our culture still doesn't know what to do with moral catharsis. I think you're right. Dory reminds me a lot of Perito. Say more. Say more about why Perito reminds you of Dory. There's a sense in which you get this fresh, wholesome perspective that tags along to a jaded old crotchety guy and is persistent in reminding that person of the the good things in life and like Perito gets hold of the map and yeah. his map is like smell the flowers and then they won't hurt you like everything's sweet and safe and joyful and you're right in that he never confronts he's running from something he's running from his own traumatic past and probably his like overly sunny outlook on life is a strategy to avoid dealing with pain which needs to be confronted and he never has a reckoning about that which i think would be a fascinating uh, turn to this movie That'd be a real movie. Let's make a sequel about Perito. A a sequel about a sequel about a side character about a side character. A side character in a movie about a side character about a side character. Puss in Boots, Perito, (laughs) the second to last wish. Surprise, there's another wish. So let me just make one comment on that. Even the side characters in Finding Nemo. So remember, again, I'm so vague on the specifics, but Dory has a moment where... It's okay, I got you. ...where Marlon... she realizes Marlon like hasn't really been caring for her. I think he like sends her away or something. Gosh, I need to rewatch this movie. He gives up. They get to Sydney. They're swimming around and he sees a pelican eat Nemo. Something. He thinks Nemo's dead. He sees he sees Nemo get flushed down the drain. That's what happens. And he's like, "It's over. I'm going home." And he gives up. He gives and, up on and Dory. He's like no, 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 you you can't go. I, I remember things when you're with me. I can't explain it, but somehow, like, the journey we've been on, the time we've spent together, and I can remember P. Sherman 42, well, if you wasted me, I'm going to cry. I know. I'm not crying. You're crying. And then he just swims away from her, and she's, like, swimming in circles, like, I don't, I don't remember. I used to memory. remember, but I don't remember. And then Nemo pops up, <laughs> and he's like, have you seen my dad? And she's like, are we looking for your dad or my dad? Dad! You remember that movie with crystal clarity. That's amazing. (laughs) Listen, though. Listen. Dory's language to Marlon is moral in nature. She's saying, don't leave me. I thought we were Mm. friends. I thought we had something. And Marlon lets his crippling fear take get the better of him and he does something wrong he swims away from his friend dory yeah and it's understandable he thinks yeah. his son his only son that he's been oh this journey they've gone on the extravagant lengths you know but then he very quickly shuts up his heart yeah like too prematurely he shuts up his heart yeah. and says it's over and that's a defense mechanism against more pain yeah understandable he's been through a lot of pain yeah but you're right. There's there's fish in front of him that he could love. Yep. That that need him. That depend on him. Yep. Gosh, that's a good movie. We've lost, I think, our moral center. We've lost our moral heartbeat. Hmm. And that's why this movie didn't land for me. And I and I again, I mean, we're gonna say it again and again. C.S. Lewis said it best. 
a children's book that can only be understood by children is not a children's book in the slightest because they are little people and they are dealing with the world and they need to recognize that moral heartbeat at the center of reality. And we're not giving them that. So I almost want to rewatch this movie and just try to find that moral heartbeat. Do they ever mention uh, right and wrong? Do they ever really reference those concepts in in a way that's other than set dressing? Are they taking Mm. responsibility seriously? I have to say the answer is no. And I don't even think it's the filmmaker's fault. I think it's the worldview they've inherited. Yeah. We're missing our best tool for storytelling. We don't understand it. We've almost cut it away so that we don't make anyone feel bad for the choices they've made. So maybe there's beneficence in that decision, but it's cut the guts out of any decent story. And that's, to be honest, gosh, I'm on the complaints right now. That's why our (laughs) movies have sucked for the last 10 years. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. You said it. Even Shrek has it. Hey, let's do Shrek next time. All right, let's do it. But anyway, Carlin, uh, that's big. If you want a follow-up on that theme that I'm talking about, read C.S. Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man. He has mm. the defining segment of that is he talks about we're creating a culture where in, in robbing people of morality, their, their moral center. So he talks about the appetites are in the stomach. The intellect is in the brain. But the will is centered in the chest and we've created, Mm. uh, he calls it men without chests. So people who are driven just by their appetites or just by their intellectual knowledge of the world, but they have no Mm. moral center. And that's what a world without God, a world dripping in modernism gives us. Wow. So good. Thanks so much for sharing that perspective case. That's really cool. Well, it's C.S. Lewis, not me. So whenever you quote C.S. Lewis, you're bound to be good. (laughs) Yeah. Well... He's a legend. He's the true legend. The legend of C.S. Lewis. <laughs> anyway, this has been another episode of Cinema Circle. Cin- I can't talk. This has been Cinnamon another episode. Circle. This has been another Cinnamon episode of Cinema Snack. Cin- Cinema Snorks. <laughs> Cinema Circus. Cinema Snapple. Cinema Snapple. It is a bit of a Cinema Circus, isn't it? Oh, thanks for listening, guys. How many boots would you give this movie? Two. Dirty leather boots. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see you next time.